Sarah Breedlove was a genius. Born in 1867, the first person in her family to be born into freedom, she was one of six brothers and sisters from Louisiana. When she died 51 years later, she lived just down the street from me in New York, in a mansion. She was the first self-made black millionaire in the United States. Madam C.J. Walker pioneered the way hair care was sold in this country. When she started the company, she switched her first name to C.J., adopted Walker from her husband, and added Madam at the front because it made her sound French. She pioneered the idea of a sales force. She traveled the country. She gave speeches all throughout the United States. She solved problems that other people didn't even know were problems. And now, a hundred years after she did her work, the things she created are still being copied by companies all over the world. She was a genius. Hey, it's Abril Hernandez, and this is a special archive episode of Akimbo. The word genius gets thrown around a lot, given that no one can actually agree on what a genius is. The MacArthur Grants, the so-called genius grants, have been awarded to more than 960 people so far. And even if you don't concur that every single one of them is a freaking genius, I think that we would probably have enough agreement that some of these people have something awfully special going on. So what's a genius anyway? Well, here's what we did. A couple hundred years ago, we started a generations-long conspiracy to establish that a genius is someone who's not you. That a genius is somebody who can do something you can't do, who's so smart, operating on such a high level, that it's for the other. Nikola Tesla, clearly a genius, invented radio and lots of our uses of electricity. He was a little quirky, and as a result, Max Fleischer put him in the Superman cartoons, name-checking him and establishing the meme of the mad scientist. Albert Einstein, another transplanted European, also labeled as a genius. With his big head of hair and big ideas, it was established that this is what a genius was. Somebody who was incredibly smart, but didn't necessarily know how to find his house as he walked home from his day job at Princeton. So that's one possible definition. Geniuses are busy doing something you and I could never do. But what about those MacArthur geniuses? People like Tyanese Coates or Majora Carter, Tim Berners-Lee or Saul Griffith. These folks are doing something we could totally do. We just needed them to do it first. We never could have thought of what they thought of. And so we label them as geniuses. Liz Gilbert, in her fabulous TED Talk, explains to us that in the old days, that's not the way it was. The word genius wasn't a person It was the stuff inside of us, that our job was to let the genius out, that if we could just get out of the way of the genius, we could share our ideas. But as ideas became more and more important, and as they became more widespread, because the media would allow us to share more of them, genius became a person, Einstein, people who have something special. And the conception is that geniuses are born 
not made, that it's something that we can't possibly will upon ourselves. Yes, that's Gene Kelly dancing up a storm in a movie called Summerstock from 1950. I hope we can agree that he was a genius, that he did things with tap shoes that most of us have never seen, couldn't imagine doing ourselves. Okay, so he's a genius, and maybe he was born that way. But if that's true, where's all the new tap dancing geniuses? I have a different theory about genius and I want to share with you. Let's start with sports. Because sports is a great place for the people who believe that genius is something that we're born with. They like to say, well, I could never play basketball, or I could never do this, or I could never do that, because I don't have the genes for it. Consider the case of Don Bradman. Donald Bradman is the greatest athlete who ever lived. Donald Bradman was so much better than every other person who ever played cricket. There is no comparison. Standard deviations better. It's as if Michael Jordan hit 100 points in basketball every single game. That's how good Don Bradman was. Or consider the idea that the 1969 or 1972 NBA All-Stars wouldn't have a chance against the 2016 NBA All-Stars. Why? Are babies suddenly being born with different genes? I don't think so. No, even in sports, the same phenomenon is happening. There's way more upside in being a pro basketball player than there used to be. So more people devote the time and energy to bulk up, to train, to commit their lives to becoming basketball players instead of doing something else with their time. It's a phenomenon based on asset utilization. What happens is, if the market is there, people spend more time and energy to get good at it. If Vincent van Gogh lived today, it's really unlikely that he would be an oil painter. If Steve Jobs had lived in the 1700s, he probably wouldn't have been an entrepreneur in the computer industry. The fact is that there's something else going on. If we think about an actress like Meryl Streep, my friend Brian Koppelman, who has directed and cast thousands and thousands of actors and actresses, has pointed out that she was born with something special. I don't agree. I think what happens is that each of us are born with what we're born with, and then we make a choice. We make a choice about what to invest in, about which sacrifices to make. And that choice starts us down a path, a path that leads to a ratchet, that leads to the people who are pretty good getting a little better. Because the fact is, if you're a little bit better at acting when you're 12, you're going to get on stage more. If you're on stage more, you get more chances to perfect your craft. And so the ratchet continues. Consider the pine tree. Not just any pine tree, the jack pine. If the weather gets hot or dry, the jack pine starts producing pine cones. Two kinds, female at the top, male at the bottom, so they don't self-pollinate. Hundreds of pine cones. If one of the seeds at the top of the tree gets fortunate, it'll get pollinated by some pollen 
from a different jack pine tree. And then, more than a year later, that pine cone will land on the ground. And then, perhaps, there'll be a fire. Because it takes a fire, or heat over 120 degrees, for that pine cone to open up and spread. And then, then, it starts to get interesting. Because that seed might land on fertile ground, possibly after a fire. And then, that seed might germinate and begin to grow. But it's right next to hundreds or thousands of other jack pine seeds. And a ratchet kicks in, which is that if a tree is one inch taller than the tree next to it, it gets more sun, so it grows a little bit faster. So now it's two inches taller, or five inches taller, or a foot taller, or three feet taller. And then all the other pine trees fail to grow. And that's the reason the earth isn't covered from top to bottom with pine trees. Because only one in a million actually grows up. That's quite a leap from Meryl Streep to Gene Kelly to Tim Berners-Lee or Majora Carter. From the 1972 New York Knicks to Don Bradman to Ta-Nehisi Coates or Saul Griffith. All geniuses, all the other. But what if it's not true? What if you're a Jack Pine and I'm a Jack Pine? What if you're a genius and I'm a genius? What would that mean? Well, it's frightening, because if you're a genius, you're responsible. Responsible for solving a problem that other people don't even think is a problem yet. If you're a genius, you're responsible for raising your hand, for contributing and most of all, for failing. Because that ratchet, the ratchet that comes from asset utilization, from getting just a little bit more sunlight, that ratchet only applies to people who are in the game, who are putting it forward, who are willing to be wrong. We have to be wrong if we want to be a genius, because we don't even know what the problem is yet. That's what makes someone a genius, that they're playing the game in a way that other people couldn't imagine playing that game. It's not about our genetic firepower. It's not even about how tall we are. It's about our belief that maybe we have something to contribute. So here's where it gets really interesting. I think it's interesting because if you have a choice between believing you're a genius and refusing to believe that you're a genius, your life gets better when you believe you're a genius because it comes with a sort of optimism, a persistence that comes with sharing your gift. That what you get is the privilege of saying, here, I made this. The privilege of showing up, not the arrogance of insisting that you be treated like a genius, the arrogance of insisting that you get that MacArthur grant That's not what I'm proposing. What I'm proposing is that if you are truly generous, you will realize that at least once in your life, you did something original. At least once in your life, you did something for the first time in a way that no one had ever done it before. And at least once in your life, you contributed something that somebody else needed. So if you've done it once, you've committed an act of genius. Just once. In 1947, composer John Cage 
conceived of a piece of music called 433. Here's an excerpt. a piece of music that consisted of musicians sitting on stage for just over four minutes playing nothing. He did something like that from his position for the first time. People were aghast. People were thrilled. People were excited. It was, in fact, an act of genius. An act of genius that anyone in his position could have done, but no one did. Not because they weren't capable of it, not because they weren't born with it, not because they had neurons acting in a certain way, but because they didn't believe. They didn't believe in the inner genius in a way that they were willing to let it out. Often you'll hear an interviewer talking to an actor or someone with charisma about their gift. This person's really gifted, they'll say, or when did people realize you had a gift? Well, it turns out all of us have one gift or another, but that's not what makes someone a genius. That's not what makes someone productive or important or a contribution. No, it's the emotional labor they bring to the table. It's the willingness to go closer to the bone, to do the work that might not work, to show up when all bets are off. That, that emotional commitment, the emotional labor of doing the hard stuff, that is where genius actually lives. What we get in this magical moment in time, this society that just briefly gives 2 billion people with an electronic device access to the other 2 billion people, peer-to-peer, person-to-person, idea-to-idea, that if we are willing to act like geniuses, there's a chance we can ratchet up. There's a chance, a moment, an opportunity we could do something that's worth spreading, that's worth talking about, that's worth telling somebody else. And if that happens, then we get a little bit more experience. We earn a little bit more trust and we get the chance to do it again. So yes, there's enormous head starts available to the jack pine that lives on the right tree, that's planted and growing in the right stretch of ground. That any jack pine that is smugly announcing that it grew because it was better than the other jack pine is sorely mistaken. The jack pine that grow are the lucky ones, in the right place, at the right time. In the right place, at the right time, which sounds like us. Not the rightest place of all, someone's always in a righter place than us and not necessarily the rightest time of all, because people are often in a better time than us. But right here, right now, is the right time and the right place to get lucky if we're willing to. And we probably won't get lucky the first time or the second time or the 30th time or the 50th time. We will get rejected over and over again. We will audition and get rejected. And we will send in our book proposals, and they will get rejected and we will post our blog posts or sing our songs or make our films, and they will not work. But what it means to be a genius in the 21st century is to be generously persistent, to show up because we care, because we have something to share, 
because we want to make things better. If you've got questions about this episode, I hope that you'll visit our show page, akimbo.link, A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K. Lots of great notes on this show to look at and a button where you can click and ask a question that I'll answer next time. Thanks for listening. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Okay, on to your questions. To ask a question about the episode we just finished, please visit akimbo.link, A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button. Don't hesitate. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, Seth. It's Jason from San Diego. I understand how network effect and lock-in apply to products, but how do they apply to services? The line between services and products keeps blurring. But in the case of network effect, it's super easy to come up with examples of services, non-physical items, where network effects and lock-in are essential. Let's start with something like the TED conference, or CES, or what used to be the biggest trade show in the world, Comdex. In all of those examples, the best reason to go is because everyone else is going. The best reason to watch is because everyone else is watching. They don't have to keep secrets. They don't have to be proprietary at TED. The more people know about how they do it, where they do it, and why they do it, the better it's going to work. And TEDx took it a step further. So if you want to see how it works in the services world, that's a great place to start. Locally, consider the idea of a nightclub. The main reason people go to a nightclub isn't because they need a dark, loud room in which to drink. It's because they want to go where everybody else is going. In the B2B world, the Allen and Company event every year in Sun Valley, Idaho, which collects the titans and masters of the universe in their polo shirts, is the place to go if you want to do M&A, buy a company, sell a company, because everyone else is already there. And in a smaller example, I remember years ago when we were pioneering Yoyodyne, the idea that we could run contests and promotions online, give away millions of dollars. I intentionally chose the law firm that AOL was using. And I spent, for us, a lot of money, $15,000, $20,000, hiring their key games and entertainment lawyer to work on the rules for our games with me. Why did I do that? I did it because I knew that once we had a polished set of rules for online games and sweepstakes, he would share them with his other clients. And it happened. And some of those rules still exist online 20 years later. It was worth it to me because if there was a standard set of rules that everyone was using, those rules would be more valuable, less prone to be challenged because they were universal. Once again, an example of network and login. Hi, Seth. This is Martin from the UK. In Networks, Lock-In, and Pathways, you describe the cost of interoperability as not building any of the other artifacts that keep the organization moving forward. I think I get this idea, but I'd love to hear you expand on it. Thank you. 
This is a great question about a point that I didn't expound on too much. So let me try to break it apart just a little bit. When you do the thing that will work with everyone, it's the industry standard, it's interoperable, you get several advantages. One of the advantages is you have a roadmap. The standard has been published. You know how tall the doorway is supposed to be. You know how the API is supposed to work. You know what's expected. The disadvantage is you're not pioneering, thus you're giving up the chance to build boundaries, a moat around what you're doing, and you're giving up the chance to make certain kinds of magical technical leaps because you're not allowed to. So if we think about something as simple as the jack that connects your headphone to your electronic device, it was designed more than 50 years ago, and it's super simple and it works. And no one has to wonder about whether their headphones are going to plug into your media player. It will. On the other hand, Apple has built a long history about defining its own standard and using that standard to be able to move forward. So there's a cost they pay, and there's a cost we pay, because our stuff doesn't work. But there's a benefit. They get several. So if they can get the new headphone connector to work, it will have all these benefits to people after it breaks their existing headphones. So Apple made a really audacious move by trying to replace a 50-year-old technology that was universal. They're going to get benefits. They're going to sell a lot of cables. They're going to require people to take another leap to give them even more lock-in. But they also have the opportunity to make the experience better, to offer power to the headphones, to offer higher resolution, more control, and on and on. So it's a double-edged sword. You give up something when you go interoperable and you gain something, but you've got to pick. What are your thoughts on the demand for in-person activities, specifically entertainment? Put differently, do you think we're moving towards a VR, computer game, Amazon ordering, Uber Eats dominated world that will look more like Wally? Or will there be an increasing demand for in-person activity to combat this? I'd love your thoughts. There's something easy to miss when we go digital, and it's this. It tends to be winner take all. So Airbnb quickly grows to hundreds of thousands of rooms under management. But there's only one Airbnb. So Amazon quickly grows to become the biggest bookseller in the world. But there's only one Amazon. So when we think about local, well, your local was never going to be the one and only. There's still going to be local, a lot of local, but the local's always going to be small, and the digital is likely to get bigger and bigger. So it looks like digital is taking over the world. If we consider something like the Kindle, maybe a million people are reading a super popular book on this one device. So it looks like digital is winning. But a successful bookstore in Portland still sold the 280 copies of that bestseller they were hoping to sell. Local feels different and looks different because it's not trying to clear the board to be the one and only. It's trying to be local. Thanks again for listening. It's always great to hear from you. We'll see you next time. 
There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned, it's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, We've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac podcast network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.